You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I am really excited to be joined by Wynne Collier, pastor, professor, director of the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination, and an author. And so today, Wynne came on the podcast to discuss his book on the life of Eugene Peterson called A Burning in My Bones. Friends, I love biographies because I believe it is really helpful and important to learn from the lives of those who came before us. And to learn from someone like Eugene Peterson is especially helpful. If you don't know Eugene, he is the translator of the Message Bible and the author of many different books. I first came across his work in college, reading Working the Angles, which is a book that actually comes up in our conversation here. And it's just one of those books and some of the work that he's done, it, it just sticks with you. And so talking to Wynn today was really exciting because he got to know Eugene and obviously wrote this biography. And so he shares a little of how he was impacted. He gives us some insight into the life of Eugene. And we even get into the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination a little bit. So we go many directions in this conversation. It's a lot of fun. But ultimately, we only begin to get into all the really cool stuff that's in the book. So I do highly recommend go check out the book at the link below to go even deeper but we're happy you're here today friends and we pray that this conversation with Wynn Collier talking about Eugene Peterson is a blessing a challenge and an encouragement to you Wynn welcome to the Rua Space podcast what an honor to get to spend a few minutes with you today well thank you for inviting me it's good to meet you and have a conversation yeah, I really loved your book on the life of Eugene Peterson, A Burning in My Bones. And I came to it because I really love biographies and I really enjoy learning from, you know, the cloud of witnesses from the book of Hebrews. And so that one really just stuck out to me. And before we dig into the book, I just want to say the way we first connected was very unique because I went to email you to thank you for the book and talk to you about coming on the podcast. And you recommended that people send you a handwritten note. So I sat down and I started writing a handwritten note. My hand cramped like seven lines in because I haven't written that much in years. And I sent it off to you and got one back. Can you just share that sort of practice with me and why that is something that's important to you? Sure. Well, I think a lot of times we live at the tyranny of um, email and texting and and I, and I do it as I do it as well, but there's just something really human about a piece of paper and knowing that someone else's hands touched it and the time that's taken by, um, writing and, and also there's, um, something really inhuman I find about, uh, some kinds of digital, um, communication and the expectations, at least that I feel to reply immediately and have a quick response. And I don't think that's really very healthy. It's certainly not healthy in our public discourse and I'm not sure it's healthy in our everyday life. And so I think there's something about the slowness. I have, you know, some people that I, we purposely write letters back and forth because it allows us to have a conversation in ways that sometimes it seems like it's harder to do in digital ways. 
That's really true. I had to really think about what I was writing ahead of time. And hopefully you could read all of it. I kind of have that doctor chicken scratch, uh, can't read handwriting. I tried, um, yeah. but I we're really here. had to think. Yeah, yeah, we're here. So some part of the message got across. But that that slowness, you know, just coming off of reading this biography, this, this look into the life of Eugene Peterson, that, that invitation stood out to me. And I don't know if I always would have written a note, but in light of what I had just read about Eugene, it felt like a disservice to send you an email. So that slowness aspect of his life really stuck out to me. Do you mind diving a little bit into that? What was that like to be with someone? Maybe you can describe his sort of, it felt like in a whole ethos to his presence of being with people was not rushing. Yeah. You know, I, I think he's just someone who, over the course of his life, he learned the the art of listening and presence and being really comfortable with who he was and who God was with him. And so I know oftentimes if, if I'm in a conversation and there's a lot of dead space, I often feel the compulsion to keep a conversation going, come up with something to say. Yeah. Um, I know I'm sure they teach you on podcasts to never let there be, you know, a lull. Um, and, uh, but he didn't suffer from that. I mean, if there weren't any words that, that he had to speak, then he wouldn't speak them. And he was completely comfortable with just sitting there with you. And the first time it happened, maybe the first five times it happened, it might be super awkward but eventually it would start to shape you and you would start to become okay with just being with someone else and looking out the window and um, enjoying the sunlight and pondering something that was said before. And, um, and when there were words to say, it could be lively and invigorating, you know, but that, that you didn't have to go at one speed. And so I think that Eugene lived at a very human speed and at a very um, sort of in a Godward direction. And it did, it changed. So you'd be in his presence and over time you'd find your, the questions you came with would start to change or disappear or you'd forget what they were or you'd create new ones. Um, anxieties that you felt slowly started to slip away and um yeah, it's it's a remarkable thing to be with someone that you don't feel like is working really hard to be with you. Yeah, I had that in seminary. We had to do these sort of group therapy processing listening practices. And I sort of had it uh, beat into me <laughs> to sit in the silence. And it was that same sort of experience of sitting with someone um, faithfully and listening and not the need to jump in it's hard. I'm still in process on it. It's, it's, a, it's a dream of mine to be like how you described him uh, someday. I hope to get there, but it is hard. Did, did he ever talk about, or maybe just in your own reflection in that space, why we struggle to hold silence with one another? Why? Because you said that initial feeling is it's awkward. I'm not sure that I ever heard him talk about that explicitly. I mean, he certainly talked about the need for silence and why our, our modern world is so at odds with it for sure. But 
I think as humans, um, particularly uh, humans in our time, like we're just really committed to control. Um, words can give us, uh, when they're used improperly, words can give us the mirage of control. They, they keep the mind working. Um, they, they keep us in the realm of ideas. They, they're, there's something that's very unnerving, um, disarming in ways too about, about silence. And it's very vulnerable. Um, I'm not in control. I mean, if we were, you know, if we were just to go silent here for about the next three or four minutes, um, not only would your podcast listeners probably, you know, wonder what in the world has happened, but there would be an awkwardness because it's not what we're comfortable with. But I think that says more about us than it says about, um, about that practice. Um, and I think it's something worth recovering. Yeah. We're used to distraction and coming out of the present moment so much that entering back into it can be difficult. But it does seem to be in my own life, the people that if you were to ask me, who's a wise person that you trust to speak into your life, that is a comforting presence, they're often those types of people who hold silence and hold space well. Um, you know, for me, comes to mind Dale Cooper. He was used to be the chaplain of Calvin College for, I think, 30-something years. And he, he's a person who holds that kind of space. And it seems like Eugene held that kind of space. What, what originally drew you then to him? Because clearly he's had a big impact on the world with the message and with so many books that he wrote, not just for pastors, but for just the, you know, an ordinary follower of Jesus. Was, was it that that drew you to him? Was it that, that presence he held? What kind of drew you and how did you sort of enter into writing a book about his life? You know, when I was introduced to Eugene, I don't think I'd, I had, I hadn't heard of him. Um, I was a young pastor, still fairly fresh out of seminary, and an elder in our church came up to me after church one Sunday and handed me a copy of a book and said, "I think you, I think you'll like this." He probably meant, "I think you need this," and he handed me a copy of Eugene's "Working the Angles: The Shape of Pastoral Integrity." Yep. And I had been swirling in all kinds of questions and uncertainty about what does it mean to be a pastor? Am I supposed to be a pastor? I'd been in some contexts where I encountered some pastors that were very much what I didn't want to be like. And um, that afternoon I opened it up and I was only a couple paragraphs in and my heart just felt like it'd been pierced because I all of a sudden heard someone describing a pastoral life that was deeply about God. It was, it was um, large. The vision was large and yet it was super simple. It wasn't easy, but it was, it was direct. It was holy. It was human. It was true. And it gave me a vocabulary that I think I had been aching for, but didn't, didn't know how to describe this life. But the moment I began to read, I was like, of course, this is true. Um, and uh, so I began to read him a couple years later. Um, when I was writing my first book, I got the publisher who had published Eugene to give me Eugene's address. And I began to write him and he just became my 
my pastor through letters. And uh, that's how our, our relationship uh, took off. So when you started reading that book, do you mind sharing maybe what were one or two big shifts for you as, as a pastor or just as a person where you say, I, I can just name that as we started writing or as I got into that book, here is something that I may have taken many more years to realize or shift on had I not met his work at that time. Yeah. Um, I think the way I would just approach it is I would just say just the ways he, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe I never would have shifted if you hadn't encountered, um, encountered his voice and his way. And I, I think, you know, part of it is just this, the simplicity of, so in working the angles, he talks about there's three angles, like a triangle. And these three angles are the essential components of the pastoral life that are often hidden. So his, his metaphor is that the, the long sides of the angle are these, the things that most everybody sees, you know, the, the preaching, the administration, you know, these sorts of things, but it's the hidden things that are, that are the truest. And that's scripture, prayer, and giving spiritual direction. And I think I had just encountered a lot of pastoral voices. I had been inundated with pastoral leadership literature that talked about the pastoral life and work in ways that was just way more similar to being the uh, manager of a franchise uh, yeah. Burger King or something. Mm -hmm. But to actually, um, to actually hear someone say plainly, that being a pastor was about living in the large and truthful story of God. It was about a life turned in attention to God. And it was about sitting with other people and helping them hear and respond to God. Like that sunk into a very deep place in my soul. Um, and then there were, you know, a few lines he said early on that just, that just uh, really snagged me. I mean, one, one is when he said, the easiest thing to do for a pastor to do is to please a congregation. If you think your job is to please a congregation. And then he said um, early on, he said um, one of the easiest jobs to fake it at is being a pastor. And all of that really encapsulated in this central theme that being a pastor is about God. And it's really subtle to make being a pastor about building a church or leading a good religious organization or helping people to um, be able to answer religious questions properly or motivating people to do good work out in the world. Call it missional, you know, all of which are good and wonderful things. But somehow um, God can often get missed in the mix. And I was really hungry for God to be at the center again. Yeah, it seems it, it stood out to me that he, you know, we talked about sort of a 
silence, slowness in interpersonal discussion, but he also seemed to just be an intentional space maker with his time overall, right? Of it stood out to me that he didn't just, at least how I was reading it and, and it was coming across, just book himself silly with a million things to do, but would intentionally just be available for what came up. Yeah, that's right. In fact, he would he would sort of schedule that in. So, you know, if he if he was going to go to the hardware store, um, he would often schedule in an extra 30 minutes Mm. in case, (laughs) in case he saw someone, in case a conversation happened. Uh, And, you know, that's so different from when we just, me, (laughs) you know, I'm tempted to just pack things in to be as efficient as possible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, efficiency can really kill the soul. Yeah, he built in that margin, the the intentional space around the page to be able to take notes, right? I mean, I think of our Bibles and, you know, you can buy a Bible where the words go right up to the edge and there's, there's really no space to do any sort of uh, extemporaneous, you know, interaction just in the moment sort of, of write those notes, but there's some with really wide margins and it leaves an opportunity to engage it. And, and obviously he was doing that as a pastor, but I think there's something, you know, no matter who you are, if you're a mom, a dad, a student, you you work at the gas station, whatever it is, it, it seems applicable to say, and a little countercultural to say, we don't have to book ourselves 24 seven, that maybe we can build in some of that space and, I don't know. Jesus seemed to have a lot of that, right? A lot of his interactions were not planned. Yeah. It's more than a little countercultural. I mean, it's massively <laughs> countercultural. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. And he seemed, so one thing then that, 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 that brings to mind for me, and, and, and I'm assuming it was part of it is in your book, you talk about the scent and I just want to read a, a part of the book from page 60. I, if I took my note correctly here, it says, In all those 55 years, Eugene had never truly mapped his future. So kind of like not fully mapping your day, it it, it was a lifelong thing of never never truly mapped his future, never tried to lay some ordered path toward a clear career goal. Intent, sure, but haphazard too. The whole meandering journey had been a dog sniffing the wind. Such a good image. The next whiff being the only real clue. What had been the scent, holiness, the presence? So it was, a, it was a whole way of being, of saying, I'm not mapping the whole thing out, but following the spirit. And that's what we're all about here at Rua Space is making space for the spirit, learning to hear that voice, to join the movement, to join in the dance. Can you take us into that dog sniffing the wind analogy a little bit for us and, and what that looked like in his life? How did, how did he follow the voice of the spirit? What did that look like? What did it sound like, feel like? Yeah. You know, at the end of his life, he just, what he would keep saying over and again is how grateful he was. Just, he was grateful for his life and he would, he would beam and he would say, I, I just can't, I can't believe all this happened. Like I, I never, I never could have imagined it was all grace, you know? Um, so I think it was just lived, I mean, genuinely like one day at a time, one relationship at a time, one season of life at a time, um, you know, reading his journals, it, 
it's really true. Like he didn't, he didn't have this sort of five-year plan. Um, he was, he was asking questions. He was trusting intuition. Um, he was staying really close to the ground, um, listening. He, he was living a life of prayer that was constantly um, assuming that God was speaking and that he was just answering back, um, that God was alive and present and in the room. And um, it, there was just this deep abiding sense that grace was carrying him. And I think over years, um, not to say he never struggled with this because he did, but there was definitely a, um, a surrendering of anxiety, a, a laying it down, um, where he came more and more to trust the moment by moment mercy that's unfolding. That reminds me of the manna in the wilderness of God's command. Just take enough for today. There'll be tomorrow or Jesus in the sermon on the Mount. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers in the field, right? Like they don't have to care for themselves. God provides. And we love to quote those, right? And preach sermons on them and write books on them and, you know, post Instagram photos with those verses right there. But it's hard to live day to day when we want to know what's going to happen next month or next year. And I mean, I guess there's the basic truth that we, it's a, it's a, it's a facade, right? We can't actually have control of that. But do you have any insight into then maybe when those doubts did creep up or a difficult time came, how he kept walking in it in the moment, faithfully trusting God? Or maybe there were stories that kept him trusting in God's faithfulness. Well, he, he, he was so immersed in scripture. Um, in ways that I'm not even sure we can quite comprehend. It wasn't that he used the Bible. It's that he, he lived in the Bible's world. Mm. And there's a big distinction there. Um, and it, you know, and some of us might hear like living in the Bible's world and that might feel really small, like, Oh, cramped and gosh, gosh. Um, it was the exact opposite for Eugene. He, he thought the Bible was a window into an, an encounter with the widest possible reality of the universe. And his imagination was expansive um, because imagination is the eyes to see what we might miss otherwise. And so Bible stories became ways for him to understand his own story. So, you know, he, he needed to cross his river Jordan. He was in, he was dealing with his own Moabites, you know, he, um, um, he needed the Shulamites reward. Um, and so in all of these things, scripture became this really large lens for him to, to be able to comprehend his own narrative. And so he actually didn't, wasn't flustered too much by seasons of doubt or questions or um, uncertainties because he knew that Israel had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he those things didn't take him off guard. He kind of expected them, and so there's something even in that of how immersed he was in scripture that it became a, a lexicon for him, and so um, there was there was material for anything any of us could ever encounter. Our foremothers and forefathers have been there before. Yeah, and I like that, you know, you brought up the word imagination in there. And I think it's a, as you said, it's a way of being where his story was brought into the story of God, right? Like the Bible isn't just something that happened thousands of years ago. It's a living testimony of God acting in the world. And I like how you said, you know, he faced his own, you know, Moabites and wandering in the wilderness that we can sort of take that on. But the language you're using is of the imagination, right? Of us to be able to make that connection. And I know that that's something that's important at the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination, where you're you're the director, right? And I like that Christian imagination is, is, is right there. And this word imagination seems to be a common thread that as I'm having conversations with people, especially in Rua space with interviews and such, imagination seems to be coming up more and more. Can we talk a little bit about the role of imagination, both both for you and in your conversations with Eugene as someone who was immersing himself in scripture, following the spirit? Let's talk imagination. Yeah. Well, we probably first have to say, um, disabuse ourselves of the idea that, you know, imagination is just making up things. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's just um, sort of child games for those that can't be rooted in the real world. Just the opposite. And and it's why we do say Christian imagination, because it's a particular kind of imagination. And it's the capacity to, ha- you know, our the ancients would maybe have called it the eyes of faith. It was the capacity to see what we might not see if we're not paying attention. You know, you can't really read the Bible much at all very well without imagination because the Bible from its very start is asking us to live in a world that we don't always experience. It's asking us to believe the promises of one who who died on a wooden cross and descended to the place of the dead and rose again, conquering all evil. It's asking us to, to hold fast that that story is true, that the world that God is making is not the same world that I um, see with my eyes right now. Um, at the same time, it's asking me to, like I had a super long hug with my son this morning as he was um, surprising us all by, uh, we sent him away for his last year of, of high school because of a recent move and, and some different things. And um, sent him away is not the right way to put it. It's not like he's going to, a way to, uh, you know, reform school or something. <laughs> yeah, it's something he uh, wanted to do, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, we, 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 we worked it out for this to be, to be possible. And yeah. as, I'm, as, I'm, as I'm holding him this morning, and praying over him and we're both in tears and I am, I'm praying a prayer of hope of God's fidelity over him, God's mercy that requires some imagination that I, 
I can yield to a story that I don't see the fullness of it at this moment. I'm trusting the hand of mercy to be with my son. I'm trusting the bonds of love to carry him, that all of this is rooted in the one who is father, son, and spirit. Um, we can't live in this world without imagination. And uh, I think in, in churches and communities of faith, um, when we rely only on the dogmatic and the rational, the linear, um, we, we reduce ourselves and we, shr we shrink our capacity to encounter the living God who's burning in the middle of the bush in the wilderness. Yeah. He who has eyes to, to see and uh, ears to hear, you know, that's, that's kind of seeing that other space, not just what's right in front of us. I think that's a beautiful way to put it and a wise invitation for people to cultivate that aspect of faith, not to say everything has to be seen or understood logically, but there is more going on than maybe meets the eye. So when up to this point, we have spoken a lot about the the ways Eugene has impacted in a, in a positive way and, and a lot of just the larger than life sort of quality things. But one thing I really appreciated about your book was you really sharing that he was a real man, a real human being who had struggles, who wasn't perfect. And rather than being, you know, sometimes people can write things and it can come off critical of the person, like you're trying to paint them in some sort of light. And I didn't feel that at all. What I felt was actually an invitation to say, we all have our struggles and difficulties, and that doesn't disqualify us from faithfully following God. Did was that a, a shock to you as you got to know Eugene, some of the different things that, that maybe he struggled with, the questions that he had, the things he wrestled with over time? Could you take us into a couple of those and just what did it mean to you to write about that aspect of his life? Yeah, you know, um, no, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I was shocked, um, partly because you know, I've been a human long enough and a pastor long enough that nothing shocks me. Yeah. I know my own, I know my own heart, you know? Um, I mean, it's, it's a tricky thing because um, I definitely did not want to write a biography that was hagiography that was, you know, paint, painting this pristine picture of someone because that wouldn't be true. Um, but I also didn't want to like encourage you know, I don't know, just trying to peer into someone's deep interior life, you know, and a way that right. feels icky and voyeuristic and sensationalist. Um, and thankfully there was nothing really sensational. Um, but I think Eugene, Eugene's life and posture was, um, was simultaneously holy and human. And I think that's what drew me to him because you can be around some folks and they can seem at least according to stereotypes, kind of holy, but you start wondering where the humanity is. You can be around other folks, um, you know, Christian types and we're getting really good at being so-called human, you know? Um, but, 
but you scratch and you're like, where's the holiness? Where's, where's God? Um, and I just felt like Eugene was one of those people who, who believed the truth, which is to be, truly be more human is to be more like Jesus, which is to be more um, holy. And all of it belongs together. It can't be severed. So no, I mean, finding out that, you know, he thought at times he drank a little too much bourbon, you know, um, that was, and that was a long, a long time question he carried with him. That wasn't a, you know, a three month period. Um, we all, we all carry questions and burdens and, um, and, and we, we have feet of clay. And, um, so it was, it was important though, to, I think what I would say is one of the things that seemed that would be the most disserving to Eugene and to his witness and to his way in the world would be to put him on a pedestal to pretend that he was some kind of uh, perfected human. That's not the way he lived. That's not what he taught. Um, and so it needed to be a true story. And hopefully that's what it was. Oh, that definitely came across. I really appreciated that. You know, it reminded me just of the Bible's treatment of, well, everybody but Jesus, I suppose, right? Like, like David, a man after God's own heart and the struggles that he had and uh, the disciples, these, these, and the men and women who originally followed Jesus and the struggles that they had. So I think that's the good news of that story that our struggles and mistakes and um, ongoing issues don't disqualify us, right, from, from Jesus and God's love and from, as you said, walking deeper into holiness. You know, the other thing that really stood out to me, and I think it stood out to me because we've recently moved to St. Petersburg, Florida from up north, and I think for the first time in my life, I feel that the place matters more than it ever did before, that where I'm at fits who I was made uh, to be, if that makes sense, that I actually fit here. Not, not just like culture, but the geography, the very, the air. And I know for Eugene, Montana held a space like that, did it not? And so can we talk a little bit about how that shaped him and why, why he felt drawn and most comfortable there? Well, I think for him, it was just, I mean, it was the place from his childhood. I mean, it never left him. Um, you know, some of us, maybe we have to move, move away to find our place, but Eugene, it, it was the place that, that brought him into the world and that landscape, the ruggedness of it, the, 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 the starkness of it, the grandeur of it. He felt most alive there. He felt connected to God. Um, you know, he said, um, theology can't be separated from geography. It always, it always takes root in a particular place. And so for him, you know, the imagery, the, um, the sort of common person, a culture of, uh, those who live in Montana, being a son of a butcher, I think in, in Kalispell being around working every day, salt of the earth people. Um, it's why he never really liked pretense. Um, he, even when he was around, you know, big name or powerful or wealthy people, he never really felt very comfortable because that wasn't, that wasn't who he was. Um, I think 
his his picture of the mystery of God and the, the grandness of God was certainly shaped by those sawtooth mountains that or mission range mountains that he would see across Flathead Lake from his house um, from the time he was 15 or 16 years old and built that cabin with his dad, that, that, that particular horizon um, was uh, always in front of him. And I think it's harder, it's harder probably to, um, you, you have to work harder to reduce God when you're looking at a landscape like that. Yeah, and I, and I think it's just an invitation as well for people listening to pay attention to your place, to your space of how does it speak to, of God? What, what does it invite you or beckon you deeper into? Because again, you know, to me, it goes back to imagination a little bit. We often, so often think in, in logical uh, terms and we don't, we don't always have the time to pay attention to the space around us but it seems like that's to miss something of a connection with, with God's movement in the world, a, a connection to something greater. I don't know. That, that just definitely spoke to me and I appreciated how you, how you brought that out. And I think there's a, there's a beautiful beckoning in there, if you will. Yeah, I think so. So as we come toward the end of our time, I want to just give you the space and ask you maybe to share if, you know, of course, I would encourage everyone to go read the book, right? We hardly scratch the surface of everything that, that you were able to write about. But what is maybe one thing, if people were to take away one thing from his life, from your book, from the conversation, can not that you know forcing you to boil it down to one probably isn't fair, but what may be a final word you would leave with people? Maybe, maybe just um, finding hope in the fact that it's possible to live as um, a wide open, awake, given to this world human who loves the earth and loves creation, loves God's people, and to be holy, to to know God, to love God, to live toward God, faultingly at times, but truly and with integrity. And I know in our, in our time, I'm pretty desperate to find people of integrity who live, who live what they say. And um, I think when I was starting into this research, there was a little apprehension. What will I find out as I'm interviewing people across decades as I'm reading his journals and letters, like what, what, what was he like behind the scenes? And uh, he was true. He was who we thought he was. What a blessing. And of course, you do go into many other things that we didn't have space for here around his writing, around the message, around his thoughts on very controversial topics and how he wrestled with that. And I, I like the word you said, openness, that really comes across in the book. So I would highly encourage people to go check out the book because um, it'll bless you in many different ways. And so I will include a link to the book where people can find it to purchase it in the show notes. But when, where else can people find you and everything that you're up to connect to connect deeper and keep up with uh, what you're doing? Well, they could find us at petersoncenter.org or whencollier.com. That's my personal writing site. Petersoncenter.org is 
the site for the Eugene Peterson Center on Christian Imagination at Western Theological Seminary. Great. I will make sure to link those in the show notes. And I am just so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for your faithful work on this project, for writing this book, and for coming to share a little bit about it today. It's greatly appreciated. Well, thank you for your time and just for a good conversation. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before we go, I just wanted to thank you again for taking part in this conversation today. And once again, to highly recommend, go check out A Burning in My Bones and the other work of Wynn Collier at the links in the description. And as well, friends, if you enjoyed this interview episode, we have interviewed many people on this podcast. I would highly recommend going through the archives, checking out some of those other conversations. And if you enjoyed this, we would be blessed if you would consider checking out the link to Patreon below, where you can help support the podcast and the ministry overall, while also gaining access to some really cool exclusive content, live events, giveaways, special series, and more. So once again, go check that out Patreon. And friends, until next time, grace and peace be with you.